Jesus, have you ever had someone give you a brief but life-changing bit of advice? Uh, if so, what was it? And the responses kind of ran the gamut. Uh, some of them were silly. Some of them spoke of lessons learned, you could tell, in a moment of deep pain. <laughs> like, you could, just, you could hear what they're saying and like, wow, there's, there's some, some hurt there. Some were just pithy bits of wisdom. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to be funny, you know, wherever you go, there you are, or whatever. Um, others had this ring of timeless truth. If you're curious, you could check out that post uh, from, from a few days ago. But within 24 hours, over 50 people had commented on that. And what I thought was interesting is no matter what their response was, I guarantee if you were to go to every one of those people and say, do you remember where you were when you learned that? Every one of them would have a story right? I mean, it, it, even if it was silly, right? They just, someone told them and it stuck in their head. Or, wow, this is a hard life lesson that they had to learn. And every one of them probably has a place associated with that truth. When we learn really significant lessons, we tend to remember the place where it happened. If you've been around Chapel Rock for a long time, that might be this very room right now. Some of you may have come to faith in this room, walked this aisle, given your life to Jesus. Some of you younger ones, maybe it was down the hall, right, in, in, in one of the, the youth classrooms where Jesus really got a hold of your heart for the very first time, not a church camp. Some of you, it, it, was, it was in a, a living room sitting around grandma's table. We tend to remember, when, when we really learn something, it just locks into our head, we tend to remember the place where it happened. I hope that today this room could be that for you. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Mark 121 is where we're going to start today. Thanks for being here. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. Uh, it really does help us out when you fill out your online connection card, so please uh, do that. You here in the room also need to do that as well. Um, and just note, note your bulletin, uh, a lot going on there. Again, just want to highlight uh, the CRCD survey. That's going to help us plan to, uh, for our ministry for the next several years. So that's really important. Please do that. We're continuing our series called You Are Here Today. And one of the ideas that I put in front of you a couple weeks ago is that stuff that happens, you know, in another place and in another time can affect the way we live our lives. And I believe that these things that happened in the land of Israel hundreds or thousands of years ago can affect the way we live our lives here and now. Last fall, I had the opportunity to go with about 45 other people to Israel and spent about 10 days there. Jim and Rena Crane uh, were with us on that trip. It was, it was a blessing. I'm hoping to lead a trip for Chapel Rock people in like 2026 or 2027, uh, so start staving now if you want to go. I hope you can go, but it's like four grand ahead or so uh, to do that. That's all expenses paid other than like your souvenirs and stuff. Um, but not everybody's going to be able to do that. For some of you, you're like, that's ah, a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. So I, I hope that this series can kind of be that uh, for you, that it can, it can bless you, uh, at least come close. Our you are here place today is Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum literally means the house of Nahum. So when you're going to pronounce it, if you want to say it the way Jesus said it, you're going to you hit both vowels at the end of the word, Capernaum, all right? You're, the A and the U both get pronounced. But it, maybe you're like me and you grew up saying Capernaum, because in America that's what we do. We just chops. <laughs> so that's okay. You're not, no, no, we all know what you mean, okay? E either is fine, but if you want to pronounce it like Jesus said it, it'd be Capernaum, all right? That, the town's not mentioned in the Old Testament. 
Not one place. So very likely what happened is that it was built up by um, Jews coming back from exile. And they settled there on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, and, and they built this town. And it, even though it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, a lot of the gospel stories revolve around this town. Capernaum probably has more teaching and miracle content than anywhere else in Israel with the exception of Jerusalem. It's just packed with with stuff that happens there. And the focal point of Capernaum is the same today in its um, archaeological state as it was in Jesus' state when people were actually living there, and it's the synagogue. Let me show you a picture of it. Here's the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, You'll hear in a second, um, these are not the original stones uh, that you're seeing, but this would have been where Jesus taught. Jesus taught in this place. And we're going to read in our text today where he did. And there's some stairs off to the side. Let me show you another picture. You can see it's kind of in that shaded area there, these, these steps. And, and people would sit there and they would listen. And, and sometimes you could kind of hang out back there off away from the main area. But it's pretty cool uh, to sit there and just think, wow, you know, 2,000 years ago, someone was sitting right here listening, uh, listening to Jesus. And there's a little courtyard now today off to the side. Uh, let me show you a picture. You can see Jim and Rena down there in the bottom left. The guy who's talking in the black shirt, that's Mike. That's our tour guide. And then the synagogue is there in the background. Now, if you look at the very bottom of it, you can see a, a difference in color in the stones. You know, I, I'd love to explain that to you, but I think it'd be better if I just did it in location. Watch. Hey, Chapel Rock, I am here in Capernaum. Over my shoulder is the synagogue where Jesus taught. This place that you see, the, the white stone that you see, was actually rebuilt later. Um, there's there's a, a lot of black stone around here. I'm going to spin you around again and show you all that black stone is basalt. And... It's volcanic stone. Most of the synagogue of Jesus' time was made out of that. This is the place where Jesus did so many miracles. Uh, he raised, um, or he healed Peter's mother-in-law. This is where the, the paralytic with his four friends brought him to Jesus. Um, this was a place uh, of, of miracles. It was a place where Jesus um, trained his disciples, but it was primarily a place of teaching. Jesus gave so many teachings here in Capernaum. And I think the thing that's so amazing to me is that, you know, he pronounces this, um, almost this kind of malediction on the community because while they were amazed at his miracles and amazed at his teaching, they didn't all follow him. And I think what he wanted to communicate so much was, listen, if you're going to believe that he did the miracles, you need to do what he said. See, it's in Capernaum that Jesus raises the synagogue ruler Jairus's daughter from the dead. We believe this is his house. This is the house of Jairus. So you remember the story that, you know, the, the, you have this um, thing, and then the, you see the people on the left, that's the synagogue. So Jairus's house is right there in the foreground, bottom left, and then the synagogue is right there. You're like, that's right next door. Uh, yeah, you ever heard of a parsonage? Jairus was the synagogue ruler. It was his job, and he lived right there. And then off to the right, that's where Peter lived, and there's a Catholic church built over it today. Let, let, me, let me show you that, right? So in the very, it looks like a spaceship made out of concrete. It's not. It's a Catholic church, okay? Right in the very middle, best we can tell, that's Peter's house. 
And the evidence is almost ironclad for that. They found fish hooks in it. Uh, and so the, the far inner circle is Peter's house. And then outside of it is an octagonal stone building that became a church. Church building. Very, very early on. Eight sides. By the way, Chapel Rock, look up. Pretty cool, right? So this is Peter's house, the, the, the Catholic church. We were there on a Sunday, so we couldn't go in because they were like <laughs> having church. Uh, but there's like a glass floor and you can look down in there and, and you, can, you can see that. It, it was here that, that Jesus raised Peter's mother-in-law from a bad fever that was probably about to take her life if he hadn't intervened. It was in this town that he called Matthew, Levi, to follow him and be his disciple. Matthew wrote the first gospel in your New Testament. It was here that in the midst of Jairus coming to Jesus and saying, you got to heal my daughter, that this woman with this menstrual dysfunction grabs him and stops the whole procession, and Jesus heals her and, and then goes and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's in this synagogue. Can we go back to the, the picture of the synagogue, please? It's in this synagogue that Jesus gives his sermon, one of the great I Am sermons, I Am the Bread of Life, was given here. It's in Capernaum that he helps his disciples catch a miraculous number of fish. Probably some other stuff, too, that we don't even know about. They just didn't even write it down. In fact, Jesus called Capernaum home for a while, Matthew 4.13 tells us, that he just, it was his town. <laughs> so let's go back to where it all started. In Mark's gospel, our passage today comes right after Jesus has called some of his disciples to follow him. The parallel text is Luke 4. In Mark, though... Um, Luke 4, in Luke, there's a lot more buildup. We're still in chapter 1 of Mark. This is really early. And so it's like the disciples are just kind of thrown into Jesus' ministry and his fight against Satan. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Jesus doesn't skip church. I'm just saying. Anyway. Verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. I want to camp out on this word amazed for a second. The word in English appears twice, but it's two different words in the original language. This time, this first time in verse 22, it's, it's the word um, exeplesonto, right? And it's a compound word. It comes from the, the verb pleso, which means to strike or to smite, and the preposition ek, which means out of or away from, all right? It's, it's this idea, they were so blown away, it kind of kicked them out of their own space. Like, they, you know, it, it meant to be beside yourself in shock. I had a friend in Kansas in my first ministry, and he, was, he would get excited about something, and he would go, well, kick me in the head. Right? And it's like that. Like, they, these people were blown away at his teaching. All right? They're blown away at his teaching. Look at verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit called out. Impure spirit is Mark's favorite word for a demon. That's what he, when Mark describes demon possession, he uses this phrase, impure spirit. And what's really interesting, it says that he was in their synagogue, and we don't exactly know if that means is he just in the building, because they use the word synagogue kind of like we use the word church. Because sometimes you use it to refer to this building. Sometimes you use it to refer to this body, the people. We use the same word for both. They did the same thing with synagogue. So we don't know. Is he in the synagogue, meaning he's in this physical space? Or is he in the synagogue, meaning he's part of the body? 
He's part of the, these people. This is not some rando dude off the street that nobody knows who comes in and makes a disturbance. These people know this guy. He's possessed by an impure spirit and he cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. I want to pause right here and just add this. It's not really part of the notes, but I think you need to hear it. Paul says in his letters not to have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. He says to not have anything to do with stuff like horoscopes and astronomy and Ouija boards and New Age belief. You know why he says that? Because of this. As the demon is leaving the guy at Jesus' command, he shrieks and convulses. Have you ever been to the grocery store when a little kid loses it? Right? And they're laying in the aisle, and they're screaming, and they're kicking their feet, and it's like, I want to go employ a little fatherly exhortation to that child. We are going to learn this lesson. This is not unacceptable behavior. The demon is about to get kicked out of his house, and he's mad, and he's petulant, and he's pitching a fit, and he just one last jab. He, the enemy, hates you. Why are you messing with his stuff? Leave him alone. Don't be, have anything to do with it, Paul says. And this is proof why. He comes out with a shriek. Verse 27, the people were all amazed. This time it's the Greek word thaumazo. It, it just means slack-jawed shock. They're like, whoa. If they would have had emojis back then, it's that one, right? They're amazed and they ask each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. My life group right now is doing a, a series from uh, Logos Bible Software. Uh, they have this thing called uh, mobile ed or mobile education. And it's like seminary just down in little, little bite-sized chunks, right? And you can watch a session and, and, and sometimes there's some notes. And we're doing one from the archaeology unit. It's AR151 if you're curious. Um, it's really good. And this past Wednesday night, we did the one on Nazareth, and we did the one on Capernaum. And I remember telling my group that Capernaum is like one of those places where you kind of feel like you just stepped out of a time machine. Like when you're there, when you're standing in the community and you're walking around, it's been very well, like it's been um, dug up, the archaeology's really good, and, and they preserve things well, and you can kind of walk around, and you just, you kind of feel like you stepped out of a time machine. So much so that it's really easy to just kind of get lost in reverie and kind of stand there and think, wow, this is exactly what Jesus would have seen when he was there. And, and, and when we were there back in November, someone came up to me and showed me a picture on their phone. You know, phone screen's not humongous and like hey look at this and it was this was it was this picture look I was like wow that's really cool man it's like it's the view like Jesus would have had it's a shame that that dude is standing there and ruined your shot and they're like that's you <laughs> oh well I stand by what I said um it's a shame but can I have the picture uh, you know it was one of those things L listen Capernaum is a place of teaching. So here's what I think Capernaum can teach us. If you want to experience Jesus' power, you have to submit your life to his teaching. 
If you want to experience Jesus' power, you have to submit your life to his teaching. So how do we submit our lives to Jesus' teaching? Well, that sounds like a well-duh kind of question, doesn't it? Like, just do what he said. And that's not bad advice. But I really do think that there's a, a substantive difference between unthinking, blind obedience and real submission. Those, are, those, aren't, those aren't the same things. I don't, I don't think you have to totally understand all of someone's reasoning to obey them. I don't think you have to do that. I am a parent after all. <laughs> Just do what I said, right? How many of you have said that? But I know that the the biblical idea of submission is way more robust than just a blind, robotic yes, sir, to anything that God might say. Again, not bad, I just think there's more to it than that. Biblical submission thrives at the intersection of love and trust. Biblical submission thrives at the intersection of love and trust. If you're really going to submit to Jesus' teaching, you have to, he loves you, that's why he tells you that. He's not just trying to boss you around. And he's asking you to trust him. And and if you're going to submit to his teaching, you've got to understand that biblical submission thrives at the intersection of love and trust. So how do we submit our lives to Jesus' teaching? I think there are two things that this text would tell us. You need to remember and you need to respond. There's something that you need to always remember and there's a response that is asked of you. Here's what you need to remember. You need to remember that Jesus speaks for himself. Jesus speaks for himself. Now listen, we're all here, everyone here in the room, everyone watching online, we're all wired up different. We all have different personalities. That's God-ordained. I think that that's a good thing. But there's probably one thing in which we all have in common, and it's that nobody likes it when someone speaks for you and misrepresents your position. Does anyone here enjoy that? I didn't think so. I don't, I don't like, like, if you're going to speak for me, you better get what I think right. Like, like, do it right. I don't like it when someone speaks for me. So is that what we're talking about? Well, it's richer than that. But the concept comes into play a couple different ways here in the text. First of all, there's a big difference between the way Jesus taught and the way the teachers of the law taught. In the original text, uh, it's the word scribes. These are kind of semi-professional religious guys who have taken it on as their job to teach the people the law of Moses. It was kind of their job to know every nook and cranny of the law and all the commentaries on, of all the rabbis on what it meant. And they thought it was their job to teach people all that stuff and argue about what it meant back and forth and back and forth. And the way that they would do that is, well, Rabbi so-and-so says it means this, but Rabbi such-and-such says it means that. And it was just a quote war, just back and forth, ad nauseum, forever. And can you imagine, like, (laughs) you're sitting in church, and these two scholars are having an argument over what something means, and you're like, just tell me what to do. And then Jesus shows up, and he doesn't teach like these guys. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. I tell you? Whoa. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. I mean, so you need to understand when these people say he's teaching with authority, it's because he's just straight telling them what to do. He's not just firing rabbinic quotes back and forth. 
What they're amazed at is that Jesus is speaking for himself. He's not just quoting some endless succession of teachers. He's teaching them as the author of the law. God himself had entered into their synagogue. He speaks for himself in that regard, but there's another way. Secondly, the, the demon fundamentally misunderstands Jesus' purpose. Some scholars think that the demon's questions are an attempt to put Jesus on the defensive and force him to defend his actions. I don't think so. This second sentence, when in the NIV they phrase it, uh, have you come to destroy us? It could also be translated as a statement. You have come to destroy us. And I think that may be more accurate here. The, the, this, this demon understands he's making an assertion, not asking a question. He knows exactly who he's talking to. He recognizes his old boss. And so his question in verse 24, what do you want with us, is really significant because it is the exact same question that Jesus asked his mother in John 2. I mean, the exact same question, adjusted for grammar, the difference between singular and plural. In John chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, you know, Jesus, Mary says to Jesus, they run out of wine, and she, she's like, do something. <laughs> and he, he, this is what he, he literally says the same thing. L- let me show you what I mean. Here, here's Mark 21, 24 in Greek. Look at this. Ti hemin kai hois. Literally, it's what to me, or to us in this one, and to you. What to us and to you. It's an idiom. It means what do we have to do with each other, right? Now, here it is in John 2, right? Ti emoi kai soi. What to me, and it's the same thing. It's just adjusted for grammar. One's plural, one's singular. And by the way, that's emphatic. Jesus, it's, it's what do we have to do with each other? That's what, what's happening here. What this means is that the demon is basically telling Jesus, hey, mind your own business. This one's mine. <laughs> and Jesus is like, this is my business. Shut up and get out. Now, real quick. Hit pause and look at the disciples over on the, on the steps. They're high-fiving. Yeah, get him, Jesus. Yeah. Because it happens. The demon leaves the guy with a shriek, and he's in his right mind. He's healed. He's whole. He's better. See, in verse 24, the demon acknowledges the true identity of Jesus, which is something the disciples were slow to do. Last week in my dad's message, he said that in Mark, the disciples just kind of don't really ever get it. But the demon does. He calls him the Holy One. Now, you track that back in your Old Testament. The Holy One of Israel is God, especially in Isaiah. The demon knows exactly who he's talking to. In fact, in Mark, the disciples, they just don't get it. The only one who, who recognizes his divinity is a Roman soldier at his crucifixion in Mark 15. Because this is the Son of God. See, as far as Jesus is concerned, though, there is such a thing as bad free press. He, he doesn't want this demon saying who he really is, so he speaks for himself. He doesn't need to quote a bunch of rabbis, you know, to speak with authority because he's God. A major part of learning the lesson, I think, of Capernaum is having to constantly remember. We have to remind ourselves, when Jesus speaks, you need to understand who is speaking for himself. It is God. 
So when you read these words in red, you need to understand that God himself is speaking to you. And you need to remember that, church. And if Jesus is God, listen to me, that means that everything Jesus says outweighs anything you think or feel. Period. You don't get to outvote Jesus and call yourself a Christian. You can disagree with Jesus, but you're not a Christian at that point. If Jesus is, because Jesus is God, everything Jesus says outranks anything you think and feel. Jesus is able to command the demon to come out of the man, not because he calls on a higher power, but because he is a higher power. And a huge part of our submission to his teaching is just remembering that. Just waking up in the morning and remembering that everything Jesus tells you has authority because of who he is. You have to remember that. But that's not all. We also have to respond to this. And the way that we respond is to understand Jesus' words as a speech act, and that's intentionally hyphenated. Um, Carl, I'm going to skip through quickly through this next part here, but um, Tim Keller in his book Prayer talks about this. He, he basically says that you know, when God speaks, it, it, ha- it's a, it happens. It's a speech act. It's the same thing. God says, let there be light, and light just bees <laughs> everywhere, right? Now, I could say let there be light, but I have to walk over and turn on the switch and make sure it's wired up and I paid the power bill. and like, I, It takes action. But for God, it, the speech is the action. And so when Jesus speaks, <laughs> it's, he's doing something. His words accomplish something. And our response to that should be to act out the words of Jesus. The way that we respond is to see Jesus' word as a speech act and replicate that in our own lives. One of, one of the fundamental principles of understanding God is that, that he is his words. And I want to I be clear here. I'm not saying that God is in, he is your Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God's character, his nature is revealed in what he says. That, that in, in, in the ancient world, you are your words. So when the Holy One of God speaks, we have to understand that we are receiving in that moment not only instruction from God, not only teaching from God, we are having an experience of the presence of God. I want you to get this. When you read the red words, you are in the presence of God in a way that that maybe you aren't conscious of at other times. So what does Jesus want to do? When, when, When his presence is there, when he's speaking to you through his word, this speech act, how should we respond? Experience the love that he gives you. That's part of our response. Because Jesus, he loves them. He calls them to repentance and restoration. I love what New Testament scholar David Garland wrote. He says, an outburst from a man with an unclean spirit interrupts Jesus' teaching. Most would take steps to remove the troublemaker from a place of worship, but Jesus moves to deliver the troubled man. Why? Because he loves him. Now, this happens in church. What would happen if all of a sudden somebody stood up and started yelling back at me? I don't know exactly. Some of y'all are packing heat. I'm a little worried, honestly, what would happen. We would be like, I don't know. The safety team would be like, we got to get that guy out of here right now. He'd get tackled, you know, in Jesus' name. But Jesus has compassion on this guy, and he, he heals him. He restores him. 
we see distractions and we, we are like, we want to get that kid out of here. And I'm like, I think Jesus would pay more attention to the kid than me. Why? Because that's who he is. First John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He came here to, to combat that specifically. And he did it in love. You see, at another house in Capernaum, when Jesus says to an about-to-be former paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, his sins were forgiven in that moment because his speech and his action are the same thing. They're integrated. And the way that we need to respond to Jesus' teaching as to, is to view it not only as just the words that he said, but also something he did out of love because he loves us. He wants us to encounter him through the experience of living out his teaching. We see Jesus do this in another message that he gave in the synagogue in Capernaum. John 6 tells us that he gave his great sermon on being the bread of life in that very place. Listen to this in John 6. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You did that earlier, right? In our communion time? That's what he's talking about. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. This may have been one of the last sermons that the people in Capernaum ever heard him preach. And then I think a few verses later is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. And and it, it can help you remember it because of the designation. It's John 6, 66. So John 6, 66. Right? You can remember that? It says this. Look at that with me. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They just couldn't handle that. They just couldn't handle ingesting Jesus so much. And he he said this in the synagogue at Capernaum. It's so sad. And then in verse 67, Jesus says to the twelve, you do do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are, and I wonder if their ears pricked up when they heard this, the Holy One of God, because it was a couple years earlier in that very same synagogue that a demon called him the exact same thing. And Peter recognized after spending a few years with Jesus just exactly who it was that he was with. And if Jesus' speech is also an action, we have to ask the question, is there any part of Jesus' teachings or life that I'm ignoring? Because it's not just words. We live in a society where there's just words, 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 words all the time. And you need to understand that the way you respond is to see that these are not just words. That Jesus' words accomplish something. And you can't ignore his words. If you're ignoring his teaching, you will never be able to live his life. And if you're not at least trying to live his life, you will never be able to understand his teaching. Peter's response to Jesus in John 6 is one of love. 
He says this because he loves Jesus, and our response to Jesus has to be in, in love as well. It's really easy to put stock, um, or to just, or rather, excuse me, it's really easy to kind of ignore the words of people that we don't know or love, but we put a lot more stock in the words of people that we know and love. Let me give you an example. I like to play guitar. Not very good at it, but I like it. And, and I might go to the guitar store and see something that's interesting to me, or I've never played that kind of guitar. I, oh, that's a new amp. I want to check that out. I read about that in premierguitar.com. And, and so I pick it up off the wall, and you plug it in. And, right, and when you do this, when you go to the guitar store, you always bust out your best riffs. You can't play Stairway to Heaven. You'll get beat up. But other than that, you bust out your best riffs. And so when the guy walks by and he says, hey, cool riff, man, that feels good. Okay, Awesome. My brother, Corey, my younger brother, Corey, um, is a worship pastor in Springfield, Missouri. He's like super musical. He plays like nine different instruments. He can play by ear, read sheet music. It's, it's, it's sick. It's obnoxious. He got, he got all the talent, but I'm taller and I don't need glasses. So anyway, um, <laughs> he's really good. And so if I take my guitar to a family reunion and we're jamming and my brother, Corey, says to me, cool riff, man. All right. I don't care what the dude at the guitar store says. He probably doesn't even like good music. But I know my brother. And I love my brother. And, and, and he's better than me. And if he says good job, okay. Do you have any idea how much Jesus loves you? Mark wants you to understand that Jesus' teaching has authority because it's rooted in who he is, and he tells you to do these things because he loves you. He loved this guy who was demon-possessed in the synagogue in Capernaum that day, and he healed him. He, but what, they, what blew him away was not the healing, it was the teaching that accompanied it. His authority means that we should submit our lives to his teaching in order to experience his power. We have to remember. We have to respond. But listen to me. I think the longer you walk with Jesus, the more important it is that you do that. That is not a one-time thing. Every day when you get up and your feet hit the floor, remember who he is. Respond to the fact that his words are actions. The Colombian philosopher and writer Nicolas Gomez Davila wrote, violence is not necessary to destroy a civilization. Each civilization dies from indifference toward the values that created it. Now, he wrote a good deal about politics, and there's certainly a political application there, but he was also a man of faith. And I think that's even more true when applied to our Christian faith. What I'm saying is that Capernaum should teach you that if you are not committed to living out the teachings of Jesus, you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. And every generation of the church has to relearn this. Every generation of the church has to recommit ourselves to living out Jesus' teachings. The last 2,000 years are loaded with examples of times that the church got off track because she wandered away from the teachings of Jesus. See, here's what I learned in Capernaum that day. If you want to experience Jesus' power, you have to submit to his teaching. Jesus did a lot of miracles in Capernaum. But it's known more for what he taught there. Here's how Matthew describes it. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. And then in Matthew 4.17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That invitation is still open. Jesus still wants to exercise authority 
in your life, not to boss you around, but to, for, to do the most loving thing you possibly need. His invitation to repent and experience his power and experience the kingdom of God in your life is still open. And you're, we're about to celebrate that right now. We're going to sing a song of invitation, a song of decision. And I'm going to ask you to stand and you have an opportunity to respond to this. And if you want to commit your life to follow Jesus, to say, I want to be baptized, I want to live like Jesus, I want to follow his teaching, then you can do that now. Maybe there's an area of your life where you're struggling with something Jesus taught. Want to have a conversation? You can go to the next step room. One of our leaders would be glad to meet you there. If you just want someone to pray with you, not just, like, like, like that's not important, but if you want someone to pray with you about one of these things, we'd be happy to do that. Maybe your decision needs to be, every time I read the red, I'm going to do what it says. Maybe that's your decision today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing, and you respond as God leads you today.